Welcome to the MacArthur Memorial Podcast, where we explore the life and times of General of the Army Douglas MacArthur and delve into the history of World War I, World War II, and the Korean War. We invite you to follow us on Twitter, at MacArthur1880, or find the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial on Facebook. On October 21, 2017, the MacArthur Memorial and the Hampton Roads Naval Museum hosted a World War II symposium that focused on the year 1942. Pete Bulkley spoke about MacArthur's escape from Corregidor. His father, John Bulkley, led this famous mission as skipper of PT-41. Today, we want to start off with some of the players. On the left, we know General MacArthur, about 65 years old, war veteran, recalled to active duty and in charge, basically, of the Philippine and Army and U.S. Army forces there as Yusefi for the, the area of the Philippines. On the right, Lieutenant General Hama, 14th Division Commander, his opponent that will land in Lingayen Gulf on the 22nd of December. He has 43 to 50,000 troops, pretty well seasoned, tanks and artillery. General Hama was also in China in 1937 and 1938 in the invasion of China that he participated in as a commander of the 27th Division of the Imperial Japanese Army. And this character is uh, Lieutenant Bulkley, John Bulkley. He's 31 years old and commander of Motor Torpedo Boat Squadron 3. Fairly young, fairly uh, inexperienced in torpedo boats. He was assigned to that just before he came over to the Philippines. And basically, uh, I want to tell one short story about that because it will come back to see us a little bit later. In 1937 and 1938, he was actually stationed in China off of Swatow and, and also uh, Shanghai. There he met my mother, Alice, who was on board HMS Diana, where he met her at a cocktail party with the British forces that were there. They had a courtship that lasted through about maybe six months to maybe a little bit longer. But the point really is, is they were there when the Japanese were invading. Her house was bombed. Uh, she personally uh, was uh, strafed by Japanese aircraft as uh, she was out in the harbor. They got to see the Japanese up front, the Japanese army that invaded China. They saw the brutality, and they got a real feel for what was coming in the future. Just want to cover very briefly a little bit about the Pacific Rim. The, uh, when I say the rim there, it's out there by the Philippines um, and also the other parts of the Pacific. The Japanese were on the move as soon as uh, December 7th had taken place. The U.S. Pacific Fleet severely damaged their Pearl Harbor, and then the next thing is going on by December 8th, the, uh, across the entire Pacific area, the, the Japanese were attacking in a methodical and carefully orchestrated uh, number of events. You could see that um, places that, uh, you know, like Singapore was under fire, Guam, Wake was taken, the uh, British heavy ships were under attack and sunk. The Dutch East Indies were lost. And this was all going down in a rapid fashion. And then came the Philippines. History might say that the Philippines was a secondary event for the Japanese. They had no raw materials other than copper that they were looking for, but they also had a large presence that they needed to neutralize, and that was the American forces that were there, especially the Army, and also the airfields there at Clark Air Force Base. Back to General Hama for a minute. General Hamad's orders were actually to take the Philippines, and he was given 50 days to do it with his troops. 
He also responded to the Imperial staff that he could do it in 45 days. But what became an issue very quickly with the loss of Clark Air Force Base, or the Air Base, where you had 34 B-17 bombers and only three were left after the initial bombing raid that took place by the Japanese, and they almost lost all of all the P-40s and other aircraft there. So they lost air superiority, and then the Japanese fleet started moving into the Luzon area and also to Leyte and off the Lingayen Gulf and landing troops. They controlled the sea. And pretty soon what, what, we, what we were seeing is, is that the Japanese were moving their aircraft along with their ground troops, so they had air support, air superiority, they had sea superiority, and now the U.S. was faced with, what do we do? We don't have our, Asia, our Pacific fleet to move into the area and to back up the ships that were there. And so Admiral Hart, um, the Asiatic fleet commander, needed to move his ships south and get them out of the way or they would be lost as well. So they moved south, and that left Admiral Rockwell as the 16th district commander there in the Philippines. The choice that he had, and all he had left was mine, a couple of minesweepers, mine layers, a, uh, a port ship, and six torpedo boats to deal with the Japanese Navy. Not a good position for everybody. Simply put, as I say sometimes, outmanned and outgunned? Well, actually we had probably more men, but we were outgunned and we had no supplies coming in other than by submarine, and we had very few of that as well. Although the submarine force had roughly 29 submarines in the Pacific, um, they were much older submarines, and they could not carry very much supplies getting through the, uh, the blockade that the Japanese had set up around the Philippine Islands. On 23 February, the President of the United States, President Roosevelt, orders MacArthur to proceed to Australia via the island of Mindanao, and basically to assume command of all U.S. forces in Australia. That's on 23 February. The orders that Admiral Rockwell gave to the commander of Motor Torpedo Boat Squadron 3, Lieutenant Balkley, was on basically that he was ordered in late February, early March, to embark General MacArthur and his family, along with key members of his staff. And it's very important to understand this, that the purpose, of course, was to break through the enemy lines, the Japanese naval blockade, Traverse 560 miles in open ocean, which was basically controlled by the Japanese Navy, and then arrived uh, basically two days later for the purpose of Kaigayan Island in Mindanao. Sounds like a pretty simple task today. You've got GPS, you have satellite communications, you have all these kinds of things. On a motor torpedo boat, you didn't even have a Polaris on the front of the boat there where you could actually run a bearing uh, to. So navigation was going to be a huge problem in this particular episode. The other part of this uh, issue right here was the point of getting General MacArthur through. That was the mission, and it was important to understand that because as if an enemy uh, vessel was uh, encountered during the transit, then the PT-41 with the general and his, and his uh, family on board would turn away from the enemy, and the other three torpedo boats that accompanied him would go into the attack and to fend off to, to, to ensure that the 41 boat got through. Just a couple of notes about you know the, the torpedo boat itself. Not a very large craft, fairly new, ne never tested in combat. Um, the six boats came out with uh, Squadron 3 to the Philippines just a few months before the beginning of the outbreak of World War II. Uh, they were 77 feet long, about 70 tons. Their speed was their key element, both speed and stealth. Radar was kind of, you know, 
at the very beginning of the technology then. So consequently, the speed, roughly 47 miles an hour at top speed, they were powered by three Packard engines, 1,500 horsepower each, but they ran on 100-octane gasoline, aviation gasoline, for those engines. The other part of that is that they ran at night for the stealth part. So speed and stealth, and then and they're very small and very hard to detect. However, no armor. They were uh, mahogany double-planked uh, hulls, and they were manned by about 10 to 15 men each. They were armed, as you see right here, four torpedo tubes with uh, Mark uh, 7 torpedoes. I think they were not very effective and not very reliable. Twin 50 caliber machine gun mounts and 230 caliber machine gun mounts rounds up what the, uh, the torpedo boats uh, were, uh, were the ones that were delivered to the, uh, the area there. Just want to talk about this because we'll get back to the mission. If you remember what the mission is, then you take a look at some of the planning that actually went into the escape. And this is a, the part that's fairly interesting because because you see right here, Colonel Huff was the aide to General MacArthur. He came down to Sisman Cove on 18 February and engaged Lieutenant Bulkley at the time uh, whether he thought they could make a 200-mile trip to the south with a torpedo boat. The answer he got back was that it was, quote, a piece of cake. Well, sure, you know where you're going. But again, that gets pretty tricky, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But anyway, that was the first encounter of the thought process of we're going to use a torpedo boat to escape and not the submarine like the permit, which later came into play during the voyage. The, the, uh, the general thinking at the time was that the escape plan for getting MacArthur out of the Philippines was first by submarine. And that was pretty much you know, steady all the way through. At the same time, there was a thought process going on between MacArthur's staff, the general himself, and this young lieutenant. The young lieutenant uh, was actually an interesting person from the standpoint of the relationship with General MacArthur. They actually had a relationship in which, as the, uh, as, this, as the torpedo boats would go out into combat and go out and deal with the Japanese as best they could, uh, I think the general appreciated it because it probably reminded him of himself at a younger age. And he actually referred to him as the uh, buckaroo with the green eyes. At the same time, he also uh, re referred to him and called him Buck. Later, he would have several meetings with this uh, young lieutenant. Later in February, there came another surprise in which the general staffs, you know, made, made a comment to the uh, Lieutenant Walkley and said, uh, we'd like to take a test ride of a, motor, of a torpedo boat. The general and uh, his wife would like to go on board. And what that was, of course, was a test run for the general to make sure that Gene, his wife, would be comfortable with the idea of traveling on a torpedo boat when the time came. It's almost like it was a, a, dual, a dual approach right here. Submarine was available, that was the plan, but the general was thinking in the back of his mind, you know, here's another way of doing it. And, and I look at the, the history of it, and I look at the, the comments I've read, and it's almost like, hmm, this is, uh, they're, they're, the Japanese Navy knows I'm going to try and make a, a breakout. They know this. The spies are around, and uh, most likely it'll be by submarine. And they're right off the, the uh, vanilla there. They're waiting to see if we can't catch them before the, uh, the fall takes place. Secrecy and deception, an interesting point. Only the uh, squadron commander and his exec, uh, Robert Kelly, 
the CEO of the uh, PT-34 knew what the plans were. Their original plans, however, were now dashed by this idea that we're going to head south to Mindanao with our torpedo boats. Because when the end came, the thought process with uh, the Squadron 3 was that they would make a run to China. They would, do, they would put the gasoline on the back of the boats and make a run to China, maybe Hong Kong, until Hong Kong fell. But it was only about 600 miles or 675 miles away to get to China. And they thought, well, we can do this, and if we're lucky, we'll get through. As you can imagine, uh, deception and secrecy was important, both on the general staff, also in the squadron, motor torpedo squadron staff. Only two people knew in the PT boats. Again, some of the deception was that the boats were being overhauled for the China run. They were being worked on as much as they could. The hulls were scraped to get the speed up for the boats. And all this was done in a, in a secret manner. But later, when the time came for the boats to actually pick up the passengers, they would not be all together picking up everyone at one place. They picked them up in four different places. There, whether it was in, whether it was in Marvellus area, uh, there at Batan, and also at Corregidor. So uh, the impression is is that this was going to be a pretty darn rough trip, and I don't think anyone ever believed that they would even try this in those kind of sea conditions. I know that I would not be able to survive it, but those people actually did. So let me uh, let me just continue on real quick. Change of plans. 11 March. You remember 15 March was the was the mission statement that was made. This is what we want you to do on 15 March. That was always the plan. But I will tell you, the genius and perhaps the uncanny ability of thinking this thing through by General MacArthur was that he would leave on a short notice. So on the 11th of March at roughly 11.30, Lieutenant Balkley is summoned to the, uh, the headquarters there on Corregidor and meets with General MacArthur, and General MacArthur says, it's time to go. We're going to leave tonight. So now all this preparation has been done. The boats are best they can be ready to go and he is given seven hours roughly to get going and be there. So at 7.30 that night, he's going to be at the North Dock at Corregidor to pick up the general and his family. The other boats will be in their positions to pick up the other passengers that make the transit to Mindanao. When they leave the dock at 7.30, actually at 7.15, General MacArthur turns to Gene and says it's time to go. They pack themselves up. Each person was allowed one suitcase with 35 pounds weight total so that we wouldn't weigh the boat down too much with anything else. And they make their way down to the boat. The general did go on board. Gene followed. Then came little Arthur, the son. And then uh, Achu, the ama, went on board. General Sutherland went on board. And one other, two other you know, folks came on board. And the boats all left roughly at uh, you know someplace between 7.30 and 8 o'clock that night on the 11th. They've rendezvoused right out right before the minefields, all four boats. Um, I'm told the 41 boat led the, led the way through the minefield. It took about an hour, hour, a little bit more than an hour to get through the minefield that was laid, this American minefield in front of Manila. And then, just as the other person mentioned, it was off to the races. They formed up in a diamond formation, PT-41 in the front, PT-34 in the back, and 32 and 35 on both sides, and they took off. At high speed. They headed west, and they um, headed west and then south. West to get clear of the islands. Um, meanwhile, uh, Philippine boats were making a uh, diversionary uh, event to take place at the same time so that um, no one would be suspected there was a breakout taking place. 
Then the, um, the guns of Corregidor you know, were firing to, uh, again, provide a little more deception, more, a little more interesting time there for the Japanese to keep them busy, and the, the boats again went into the night. And around uh, a few hours later, or an hour or two later actually, bonfires were seen on the, on the beach, and perhaps that was an indication that there was a breakout taking place or a signal fire. Not sure. History doesn't really help us with that, other than it could have been cane fields being burned, or it could have been, in fact, we've, you know, we've got something going down here to alert the Japanese Navy. The boats then headed south. The seas were about two feet originally, and they first started, and then it, just as they indicated, they got really rough. Ten to fifteen foot seas with a 77 foot boat trying to make the best speed they could. Again, at 47 knots or 47 miles per hour, not achieved. Probably more like 20, 25 miles an hour is what they were able to achieve even in those kind of conditions right there. And they headed south, and they were going to stop in at a small island halfway through in the, Kuy the Kuyo Islands, halfway down. And you can see at the top of the Peninsula, Corregidor Island, and if you go down about halfway, you'll see that that's where they were going to stop in for a... Um, literally to get out of the, uh, or get under cover and, and use the island and the foliage there to blend in and then stop right there to reevaluate how they were doing. So halfway down, they were, uh, they were moving from Gregador down to right, right in this area here, and then eventually they would get down the following day uh, to Del Monte where the uh, airhead was there for the general to get in, and that was at Cayenne. The real trick to this whole thing is, is that I don't think anyone ever knew exactly how this was going to take place because even General, uh, Admiral Rockwell on PT-34 had a real problem with how this was going down on the navigation. The navigation truly was dead reckoning and a whole lot of luck. I mean, basically using your chronometer and your uh, course and what you think your speed is. And they actually were very successful, relatively speaking, making that island there, although they didn't go to the one they thought. And during the middle of the night, in all that confusion of the heavy seas, they all dispersed and they became separated. Some boats got in front of the 41 boat. Uh, PT-32 arrived at the island first and then thought it was under attack by a Japanese destroyer. It jettisoned their fuel, and uh, it turned out to be PT-41 before they opened fire on it as, as it came into view. PT-34 eventually joined up, and the 32 boat was lost and had to be left behind. The next piece of fascinating part of the story is the decision whether to continue in this in terrible sea conditions. And uh, basically a conference took place between uh, General uh, Garther, General Sutherland, and Admiral uh, Rockwell, and some wanted to go forward. And finally, the, uh, General MacArthur said, we're leaving now and as soon as we can. And that essentially was late in the afternoon of that uh, second day. Now, again, when you do that, you put yourself at great risk because now aviation can see you, the, air, the Japanese air can see you in the open ocean right there during the daylight hours. At night, can't see you. And consequently, they left, and an hour later, they run into a, this is PT-34 and PT-41. The 35 boat has not been sighted yet and will come in late at the end, uh, at the end game when they get to uh, uh, Mindanao. But the bottom line is, is that they got to see a, uh, a what they believe was a light cruiser uh, of the Japanese Navy. They saw it uh, about probably five to seven, eight miles away. The boats immediately turned into the sun as the sun was setting, so that the sunlight was in the eyes of the Japanese uh, heavy ship, which could have run them down at the considering the, the speed that they were able to make through the heavy uh, seas, and at the same time. Um, 
They were fortunate the Japanese did not see them. During that period of time, General MacArthur was seasick. He was down below decks with everybody else that was they were all seasick. Gene, however, came up onto the into the cockpit and uh, basically looked and looked at that cruiser. She could see it, and as uh, my dad actually reflected, um, showed no sign of fear because this was going to be either they're going to make it or you're not. So the following day, actually, after they left that mid midpoint uh, island right there, the uh, permit shows up. It's a submarine, and it is uh, told that the general and the 41 boat, the 34 boat, have already left, and they're on their way, you know, into Mindanao. They actually arrive at the, uh, the designated point, and they arrive there at 0700 in the morning, right on time. And how they did the navigation without you know, radar, without any means of that, is all by charts. It's almost like if you think about Jack Sparrow there you know, with the black pearl trying to maneuver using his compass. But how did they do that? And they all did it by charts, just looking at the charts and trying to figure out that's where the islands were. And they were very successful in getting there on time, distance of 560 miles, two days, 35 hours, and no sleep during the entire time of getting there. So I want to kind of end this and wrap this thing up about a couple of things. On 13 March at 0700, the 41 boat, 34 boat uh, arrived at Mindanao. Almost uh, within a day or two, General MacArthur orders the PTs to find President Quezon on the, on the Negros Islands and return him to Mindanao, which they do. On the 16th and 17th of March, General MacArthur uh, departs the Delmonte Airfield and heads to Darwin. On 17 March, he makes a, his famous speech there at the railhead in Australia. And on 8 April, the PTs attack a Naguma-class uh, light cruiser. They fight on. There is no more fuel left, no more torpedoes left, 34 boats destroyed. And then on 6 and 7 May, General Wainwright surrenders. And then nine, by 9 June, all organized resistance in the Philippines ends. But then three years later, General MacArthur returns to the Philippines. He lands at Leyte, and uh, retaking of the Philippines takes place. And on 12 March 1945, MacArthur returns to the uh, North Dock, there at Corregidor, on a, uh, another PT, PT-373, just where he started from way back on March 11th, 1942. Any questions? Did your dad keep a diary of this, or how did, how did this get passed down? There was no diary. When my dad left the Philippines, he was given six and a half hours notice by General Sharp. Um, that he was to be, he was ordered out of the Philippines by General MacArthur. Uh, when he got on, when he went to Del Monte Airfield right there, six and a half hours notice, he, he was there, got on the plane as a B-17 going out, and um, I'm told that he had a jacket, no shirt, shorts, tennis shoes or sneakers or whatever, and that's it. Uh, he got on the plane. He uh, and the plane uh, was uh, taxiing up and, and uh, ready to go. Japanese started bombing the airfield. At the same time, the, one of the engines was hit. The uh, pilot, he's no fool, he took off the three engines while the Japanese are bombing. So the bottom line is to your question, no. Um, he's done a couple of interviews a long time ago that I've seen, but, but I will tell you, like most veterans, that have um, experienced that. They don't talk too much about that. The only thing I've ever seen you know, in, in some of that was um, Christmas dinner. They caught a pig and they ate that, and it was like the best thing you've ever seen in your life. Well, thank you very much. You're uh, a good bunch, and thank you for all the veterans here as well. Take care.
Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please feel free to contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.